All right, welcome everybody. Uh, thank you for coming to the Cato Institute. Uh, and a special thank you and hello to everyone watching us online right now. Uh, we'll hear more from them during the Q&A. Uh, my name is Chip Bishop. I'm the Director of Student Programs here at Cato. Uh, and I'm glad to have uh, so many new faces here today. I'm glad you all could make it. Um, the mission of the Cato Institute is to increase the understanding of public policy based on the principles of limited government, uh, free markets, individual liberty, and peace. Um, forums like these allow us to accomplish that mission by appealing to a broad audience of our rising and future policy leaders. Uh, and we seek to foster an atmosphere of discussion and networking to enhance that effort. Uh, just by a show of hands here, how many of you would consider yourselves to be independent voters? Slowly, more and more. All right. Well, uh, that's good. There's at least a bunch of you. Um, we have another event coming up here next week. Um, there's this book, The Declaration of Independence. Uh, it was written by um, Reasons Nick Gillespie and Matt Welch. Uh, it's a subtitle is How Libertarian Politics Can Fix What's Wrong with America. Uh, we hold a book forum on uh, June 30th, which is next Thursday at 4 PM. I hope you'll join us for that. Um, one of the things we do here in student programs is aggregate opportunities for young people to become further engaged. You may have noticed several groups in the foyer as you came in, uh, including Students for Liberty. And uh, we had a special representative, Leah, Lily Pascucci Harrison, uh, from the Fund for American Studies. She's right back there. Um, they offer excellent academic internships. You can actually get credit for doing an internship here in DC. So if you're interested, feel free to stop by and talk to her afterwards. Um, also, um, we, uh, if you're interested in interning at Cato Institute, uh, our deadline for that internship is July 1st. Uh, so you have a few more days to uh, rush home and fill that out online. You can find that at Cato.org. Um, and uh, there are also some free copies of Atlas Shrugged. Has anyone read Atlas Shrugged before or heard of it? All right. Uh, well, the extra incentive here is that there's a little insert in each book. Um, one of the organizations that sent over a bunch of books is sponsoring $99,000 worth of prizes. Um, so uh, feel free to pick up one of the books, flip through it, read it, write an essay, and maybe you could win. I think the top prize is like 10 grand for one person. So uh, feel free to check that out and grab a copy. They're all free. They're sitting out there for you, uh, along with several other publications of Cato. Um, as young people, our lives are segmented into multiple areas. We have school, we have work, we have personal, and perhaps even more. Uh, thankfully, Cato's research can be used in all of those realms uh, for scholarly data for your job on the Hill, your think tank, or as a journalist. Um, or research support for your college papers. Um, there's actually an excellent feature on the website. Uh, you can click cite this article, and uh, you don't have to worry about where to put the comma between Chicago and MLA style. It does it for you. Um, and that's some added incentive to use Cato for uh, your research papers. Um, if you haven't checked out Cato's work, I hope you will after today. And now uh, to the main event, uh, Uncle Sam and big business, friends or enemies, and what does that mean for young people? Uh, here is today's moderator is Mark Calabria, Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, before joining Cato in 2009, he spent six years as a member of the senior professional staff of the US Senate Committee on Banking, uh, Housing, and Urban Affairs. Prior to his service on Capitol Hill, he served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Regulatory Affairs at the US Department of Housing and Urban Development. And if you can say that in one breath, I think you get an A. 
Um, and he held a variety of positions at Harvard University's Joint Center for Housing Studies, the National Association of Home Builders, and the National Association of Realtors. He has been a research associate with the U.S. Census Bureau Center for Economic Studies, and he has extensive experience evaluating the impacts of legislative and regulatory proposals on financial and real estate markets, uh, with particular emphasis on how policy changes in Washington uh, affect low and moderate income households. He holds a doctorate in economics from George Mason University, and uh, more than that, he's young at heart and perfect for today's event. So please join me in welcoming Mark Calabria. I, I was almost tempted, uh, wouldn't trip one of how many independent voters we had, because I see at least one or two faces who made me think, how many non-voters do we have in the audience? <laughs> but I won't embarrass anybody by making them raise hands. Uh, first, I want to start out you know, with, with saying that this panel came together from a series of conversations that Chip and I had, and really Chip deserves all the credit for pulling today's event together. So I at least want to get a round of applause for Chip. Thank you. Um, and these conversations really got me started to think about some of the basic issues that separate libertarians from both the right and the left. And obviously, there are a lot of issues. There are a lot of issues in which we agree. There's a lot of issues we disagree. Uh, but for me, it always seems to come back to economic issues predominantly, you know, and particularly the role of business and government. Uh, and so what I thought we'd do today uh, is have a conversation along those lines. Because even when I talk to my friends on both the right and the left and we identify the same problems, you know, for instance, to me, one cannot help but look at some of the subsidies for the banking industry that come from the Federal Reserve and the bailouts. Uh, I don't know anybody who defends them. Um, but, well, I guess I should say a few members of the current administration to defend them in the Federal Reserve. Uh, but beyond that, there seems to be common agreement uh, that these are problems and these are subsidies that need to be addressed. But once you start to get focus on the problem, there becomes more disagreement. How do we, how do we actually address that? Uh, so my purpose today, I think our purpose today, is to listen to each other, try to understand where the different sides are coming from, uh, not only to have a better understanding of the other side, but to have a better understanding of our own side, uh, to sharpen our own thinking. Um, and I also want to start with the observation, again, that to me, a lot of the conversations I have with my friends on the left, particularly, is I think a lot of the same objectives are at hand. You know, for instance, who doesn't think more consumer choice is a good thing, generally? Uh, who doesn't think that special privileges are bad and that these should not be available to one party if they're not available to all? Who's against safe and affordable products? Uh, who, I also would say to a lesser degree, I think many of us are very suspicious of concentrations of power, both in the corporate sector as well as government. Um, again, I would be surprised if anybody in the room, much less on the panel, would defend crony capitalism. So again, there's a lot of agreement, but again, how come if we have these common goals, we end up with very different policies. And so again, in my mind, that comes from very different assumptions. Uh, I think it's also we should note that we don't live in a world, at least in my mind, of either perfect markets or perfect government. Uh, individuals are driven by greed, fear, ignorance, as well as hope, passion, faith, both in markets and in government. So given these imperfections, what does this mean for the interaction of real-world governments and real-world markets? Uh, for instance, some of the questions I hope we touch on today is, does government serve as a countervailing force offsetting concentration and monopoly, or does it tend to be a force that reinforces and creates monopolies? Um, if, again, we believe that government is susceptible to being corrupted by business, does more government necessarily mean it will be less susceptible to be corrupted by business? How exactly would these work out? Uh, I also want to note that 
after the panel discussion, we're going to have a reception upstairs. So I hope that over a few beers, the conversation can continue and actually get a little deeper among our, ourselves. So uh, don't take the panel as the end all be all. Uh, we are very, very lucky uh, to have a wide ranging and a well qualified panel. So I'm going to give a little bit of introduction of each of them and then we're going to open it up to their presentations. Uh, our first speaker is going to be Tyson Slocum of Public Citizen. Uh, and if you're not aware of it, they are founded by Ralph Nader and represent more of the progressive left. He serves there as director of the energy program. In that capacity, he oversees policies relating to climate change, coal, oil, nuclear energy, renewable energy, and commodity market oversight. Uh, public, prior to his work at Public Citizen, Tyson worked at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. He is a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin and a native of Newport, Rhode Island. Our second speaker will, be Tim, speaker will be Tim Carney, who serves as senior political columnist at the Washington Examiner. Uh, his columns are always a great read. I have to say they usually either make me scream or cry, sometimes both. Uh, but he's also, in addition to his columns, a, a published author of two books, I believe. Uh, the most recent one, Abominomics. The first book is The Big Government Ripoff, How Big Business and Big Government Steal Your Money. It's probably given away a little bit of where... Uh, <laughs> where Tim's position is going to be today. Uh, Tim is a New York native and a graduate of St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. And our final speaker will be Rosero Palmieri, who serves as Vice President for Infrastructure, Legal, and Regulatory Policy at the National Association of Manufacturers. Prior to his service at NAM, he worked on Capitol Hill as Deputy Staff Director of the Subcommittee on Regulatory Affairs of the House Committee on Government Reform. Now, I, I challenge Chip to say that in one breath. Uh, he also served as the staff director of the Subcommittee on Regulatory Reform and Oversight of the House Committee on Small Business. Uh, he is a graduate of American University and native of Pittsburgh. Uh, with that, I want to again thank all of our speakers, and I will turn the microphone over to Tyson. Great. Thank you so much, and uh, thanks to the Cato Institute for sponsoring this forum. I, I think that uh, one of the essential foundations of a democratic republic like ours is an open and respectful dialogue among different and sometimes competing uh, points of view. It's a point uh, that appears to be lost in the sometimes uh, lack of leadership in our current Congress. Um, uh, there's a lot of adults out there that seem unable to be able to have the most basic discourse on different issues in a responsible uh, manner. So I appreciate the Cato uh, providing this forum. Uh, hopefully, uh, in the next few minutes, uh, this doesn't result in fisticuffs. Uh, otherwise, uh, this could get interesting, maybe more entertaining for you all. Um, so a little bit about myself. Um, as, as was noted, I work for an organization founded by Ralph Nader. Uh, he's a pretty liberal guy, and I'm a pretty liberal guy. I grew up with a very deep sense of patriotism that I got from my parents. Uh, my father was career military, served three terms in Vietnam. Uh, after his uh, military service, after 20 years, uh, he got another job working indirectly for the government as a contractor running uh, computer systems that uh, launch ballistic missiles off of uh, submarines. My mother uh, spent more than 40 years as a public school teacher. Um, and so from my parents, I learned um, a lot of great values and a lot of great things. But I also learned that government can play a pretty critical and important uh, role in lives. Um, and. You know, nobody is always enthusiastic about paying taxes. There is excess when you get to the size of government programs that we have. But we have to understand that in a modern economy that is radically different from the rural uh, agricultural society 
that uh, was around when the founding fathers were putting together their remarkable documents and our amazing constitution, that the role of the United States and the duties and ob obligations that our economic power and our military power require of us require a very different type of government involvement. And for the type of commerce that is required for continued economic growth, you have to have a strong central government. Having economic and legal policy being dictated by 50 different states is not something that is always going to result in coherence or efficiencies. That said, are there problems with, uh, with current policies at times? Absolutely. Uh, but I think in the type of economic crisis that we're still uh, in, uh, there's no question that there are tens of millions of Americans that are experiencing profound insecurity stemming from incredible economic hardship that, for the most part, is not necessarily their fault. It is the circumstances of broader economic forces at work that are beyond the merits or the hard work or the resumes or accomplishments of those people. Are there lazy people who are out of work? Absolutely. Are there hardworking, uh, uh, honest, dutiful people that are lacking gainful employment? You bet there are. And there is a social responsibility that we have to make sure that we as a society provide for them. And I'm proud to, to live in a country that has a government that is dedicated to those types of principles. Um, but again, nobody's always super enthusiastic about paying taxes. I would have a much bigger paycheck and would be able to take more extravagant vacations, uh, give bigger gifts to my friends and loved ones if I was able to have more take-home pay. Uh, but the mantra that uh, uh, I know better how to spend money than government is a simplistic narrative because I'm not going to be investing in public schools when I spend my money. I'm not going to be investing in paying the salaries of our armed forces who are fighting for our freedoms uh, abroad. Uh, I'm not going to be funding the scientists at the National Institutes of Health, which is one of the best bargains that any investment can provide in terms of uh, financing the cancer treatments and other life-saving drugs that our tax dollars uh, uh, go towards. Um, and for all of the talk about big government, I am far more concerned about big corporations and the fact that we now have not just huge corporations but multinational corporations that bear no national allegiance to America or to any country. And that has resulted in some profound changes to our economy where corporations make decisions not based upon the good of the local community, but the good of their shareholder. And that is all well and good, except when it comes at the detriment of eviscerating a manufacturing base in the United States and, and leading to profound economic disruption. Um, there are, is an important role that government needs to play to ensure that these giant corporations adhere to some basic policies and principles. Uh, because they end up benefiting more than most, I would argue, than individuals from government generosity in the form of a number of different legal and economic and other types of protections and services. Corporations are huge beneficiaries of the government, and they need to, uh, we need to make sure that they are paying, paying their fair share in the form of taxes back to the U.S. Treasury uh, and, and so forth. And so... 
on the issue that I specifically work on, which is energy and climate policy, there are enormous needs for a government role because it is clear that the current energy infrastructure that serves our economy and served our economy incredibly productively. I would argue that it was America's access to ridiculously abundant and cheap fossil fuels for the better part of the 19th and 20th centuries uh, helped fuel one of the greatest economic uh, periods of growth and prosperity the world has ever seen. Granted, there are a number of other variables at play. I'm not ascribing it all to fossil fuels, but we cannot doubt the role that coal and, and gasoline played in fueling the uh, incredible economic growth in the 20th century. Those days are over. We are never going to see cheap gasoline again. We, are, we cannot rely on burning pulverized coal the way we have because there are profound implications for future generations. But when you have many trillions of dollars of embedded infrastructure invested, when you've got massive corporations that make a fortune off of selling us their monopoly control over increasingly expensive or non-sustainable fossil fuels, you have to have a public role to get alternatives a foothold into the marketplace that absent that assistance, they would never have. Simply relying on market prices to determine the future of energy policy will be an absolute disaster for working families because we would be relying on punitive price increases to slowly transition the economy to alternatives, and that is the kind of transition that we uh, cannot afford. Uh, so I've bounced around, covered a couple of uh, issues, probably said some controversial things to some folks in the room, but I look forward to the discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you. And um, Tyson could have written the first sentence to uh, almost any of my columns or, uh, or books with the sentence, corporations are huge beneficiaries of the government. Um, your follow-up is, and so therefore we need to regulate them. And my follow-up would be, and therefore we need to stop having the government benefit these huge corporations in the first place. The <clears throat> relationship between big business and big government is very frequently one of government growth protecting big business from competition through regulation and bailouts, and government growth transferring wealth from taxpayers to big business. I think that monopoly control in this country often is the result of government more than it is something to which government responds. I think that small business suffering at the uh, to the benefit of big business, sometimes that's a market force, but very often it is government that is uh, tilting the playing field towards the big guys. Um, Tyson works in energy, and I think one of the first places uh, to see the big business, big government collusion has been in the lobbying for cap and trade on climate legislation, where the, the idea is that there's an economy-wide limit of um, covered industries, how much methane, carbon dioxide, other greenhouse gases they can emit. And to, rather than just tax it or cap every company, allow tradable credit. So if you come in with a way of, you know, reducing your emissions, you can sell credits to somebody else or you don't have to buy as many. Uh, so opposing this, this bill was the uh, Chamber of Commerce, the biggest business lobby, but also supporting it was General Electric, the 
larger the company that spends more on lobbying than any other company in America. They were supporting uh, both the two Congresses ago and the most recent Congress, the biggest uh, cap and trade bills that were on the floor. You also had Nike actually quit the Chamber of Commerce uh, Board of Directors in order to support it. Apple was supporting the cap and trade bill. Duke Energy which actually just gave a $10 million line of credit to the Democratic National uh, Convention in Charlotte. Uh, they're a nuclear energy company. They support this. And the biggest supporter 10 years ago of the same sort of policy, which at the time was U.S. ratification of the Kyoto Protocol, basically a treaty that would put cap and trade in place, Enron was the biggest supporter of it back then. These companies stand to profit from it, sometimes in ways that environmentalists think, hey, that's good. Um, some people like more nuclear energy, so why not help Duke Energy uh, compete better with coal? And then natural gas, that was one of the ways Enron was profiting. Natural gas gives off less carbon dioxide, less greenhouse gases than its competitors, oil or coal. So they would benefit from this cap-and-trade bill. And some environmentalists say, well, what's wrong with natural gas or nuclear companies benefiting from government intervention if it's also good for the environment? Well. Enron also liked it because they were building coal-fired power plants in the third world, places that would not be covered by the Kyoto Protocol. And so shutting down coal-fired power plants in the U.S. would not only not affect them, it would actually probably slightly drive down the price of coal, thus making it easier for them to build more coal-fired power plants. So when big business and big government get together, not only are they benefiting at your expense in that the price of your energy goes up with these environmental policies, but also the environmental benefits that are, are supposed to happen often aren't there, um, and, the, and the support of big business often shows. I could talk about more uh, Alcoa, the aluminum company, supporting uh, the cap-and-trade and fuel efficiency standards, um, even though the, the way they profit off of it would uh, more aluminum car frames, more net energy use, but it would still benefit from the law. I just want to mention a few other things. I don't want to uh, leave out the National Association of Manufacturers, which was a big supporter of Barack Obama's stimulus bill, which, as far as I know, was the largest spending bill in the history of America. And so that's certainly not a, a limited government uh, thing there. Um, there's an infrastructure bank being talked about by Obama now, which would be sort of a Fannie Mae for pavement and buildings and mass transit. The manufacturers. I believe, are behind that. Um, the TARP, uh, that had the big support of the Chamber of Commerce, which also supported stimulus. Every company, every industry lobby, as far as I know, supported the Wall Street bailout. And Obamacare had the backing of the drug industry, which spends more on lobbying than any other industry. The biggest single industry lobby in town by money spent is the the drug lobby, pharmaceutical researchers, manufacturers of America. Barack Obama had attacked the drug lobby on the campaign because they got their uh, top lobbyists from the Commerce Committee after Republicans created the prescription drug bill. Again, big government, the insurers, the drug makers like that one. And then Obama teamed up with the top lobbyists there, former Congressman Billy Tozan, and Pharma spent millions of dollars to help the Democrats who were in trouble in the re-election because they had voted for Obamacare. 
toy safety regulation was backed by Mattel, um, knowing it would crush its smaller competitor. Cigarette uh, regulation was backed by Philip Morris, also knowing it would crush its smaller competitors. H&R Block CEO quit and went to the Obama administration, worked in the IRS, where he then wrote rules for tax prep companies, which, guess who supported it? H&R Block and Jackson Hewitt, because it would crack down on smaller tax preparers. If you guys know about the Institute for Justice, you know about dozens of government licensing laws, which their primary purpose is uh, to protect incumbent businesses against uh, challengers. You also would know about eminent domain, which is big business often teaming up with big government uh, f to the detriment of, of small landowners. And today's uh, debates, yesterday a committee passed um, reauthorization of the Export-Import Bank. Um, which I, I saw some of, uh, of your colleagues at that markup on the subcommittee side, at least. Um, and this is a, not a bank, it's a government agency that at taxpayer risk lends money to foreign companies, often foreign countries, so they in turn can then buy things manufactured here. Usually, and I'm not exaggerating when I say usually, that means to buy a Boeing jet. So if there's a default on this, you as a taxpayer could end up footing the bill to subsidize the sale of Boeing jets. That's not free market. A um, uh, lot of other things going on now. Uh, but what's going on here is a lot of liberals and Ralph Nader would talk about regulatory capture. A bill gets passed. This is their view of it. A bill gets passed then it starts getting implemented by regulatory agencies. And either originally or down the line, these revolving door guys go through, the lobbyists show up, and slowly the government agency is steered to actually helping and teaming up with the industry it's supposed to be keeping an eye on. And I think that story is almost true. But I think they're not like kidnapped. Little liberals have this nice little baby who then is kidnapped by industry. I think the, the parents of that are usually industry and somebody like Max Baucus or some other left of center uh, lawmaker. And the alliances that happen against these, I mean, when, you, when the Export-Import Bank gets reauthorized later this year, the Senate votes that are going to be the no are going to be Bernie Sanders on the far left and Rand Paul on the, the far right, and uh, Jim DeMint. And so there is lots of alliance to have here in going against corporatism, going against corporate welfare and bailouts. But I think that a lot of times the left, who shares the same view of let's not have this monopoly, let's not uh, transfer wealth from regular people to taxpayers, they think, oh, well, this time we're going to create a new government agency, but this time we're not going to let it be captured. And this time, maybe Lucy won't pull up the football when Charlie Brown comes and kicks it. I think the nature of Washington and of lobbying is that the, whenever government grows, it gives more power to whoever has the best lobbyists. And that's never mom and pop. So on the overall question here, what is the relation between big business and government? And often they're at loggerheads. The, these guys don't, um, the, or the Chamber of Commerce at least, don't like a lot of the regulation that's come up in the, under Obama. But very often they're partners. And when they get together, the victim are taxpayers, small businessmen, and all consumers. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me here. Um, I guess first I just want to say that I 
I cannot necessarily speak for every business, every industry, or defend everything that either Tim or Tyson will present to you. Uh, and my, uh, what I say here today does not necessarily express the views of the National Association of Manufacturers for whom I, I work. Um, to give you just a little flavor and intro before I uh, delve into some of the material that have been uh, handed to me here. Uh, manufacturing, I think that some people still don't kind of realize um, how important a sector of our economy it is. Um, we represent 1.6 trillion of gross domestic product uh, and 12 million men and women uh, work in manufacturing in the United States. Uh, and most people don't know that the U.S. is still the largest manufacturer in the world. Uh, we represent 21 percent of, uh, of world uh, manufactured product. Uh, China is number two. Uh, close behind China is uh, Japan at number three. Um, and China is pretty far uh, down below us. Um, people still assume that kind of manufacturing has had its day in the United States. And so, um, so you know, perhaps uh, it's not an important segment of the economy. We, we would argue differently. In addition, manufacturers perform two-thirds of the research and development in the United States. Um, we're innovators. We're inventors. Uh, you think of everything you uh, use and do, it's likely been invented by a manufacturer. Um, why, uh, why the National Association of Manufacturers was founded as a trade association in 1895 was after the panic of 1893 and a kind of a severe depression. Uh, manufacturers believed that their best opportunity for growth um, was exports. Uh, and uh, work outside uh, the United States, that there were customers that they couldn't reach um, by just doing business domestically. And uh, certainly at the time and, and even today, um, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, the relationship between government and business often is to uh, assist us uh, in trying to open up new markets abroad. And governments of all different stripes across the world uh, often do not respond simply by, uh, by the uh, requests of business, um, but need that relationship uh, with a government like the United States government uh, to begin those conversations about opening up markets abroad. 95% um, of the world's consumers are outside the United States, and we believe uh, that uh, our manufacturers here in the U.S. should be able to access uh, all those markets um, in a competitive and fair way. Uh, my association represents 12,000 manufacturing companies um, and also a few hundred uh, manufacturing associations as well as state uh, associations of manufacturing. And more than 90% of my members are actually small businesses. Um, so kind of government definition, fewer than 500 employees and a fairly large percentage of my membership is actually uh, smaller than 25 employees. And we have a very large segment of, of family-owned businesses that are third or fourth generation manufacturers uh, that have, uh, have uh, made it through uh, quite a lot of upheaval in the economy over different periods of time and have found ways to be competitive globally um, even in these challenging times. Um, during the last recession, we lost 2.2 million manufacturing jobs, um, brought back maybe a couple hundred fifty thousand of them uh, since uh, the trough of the recession in 2009. Um, but we think uh, that manufacturing is still a great place for job creation uh, and that manufacturing is 
can be uh, competitive in the United States. Um, the average U.S. manufacturing employee is twice as productive as uh, the, any employee in the next 10 manufacturing economies. So that means that two U.S. workers can make the same amount as one worker in almost any other country, and it's, uh, it's, it's even um, bigger uh, when you look at developing countries. Um, as a result, it means we also need fewer manufacturing employees to produce the same amount of goods, and that's why we can still be a, the largest manufacturer in the world with often a, a shrinking number of manufacturing employees. But we think that there is tremendous opportunity for uh, growth in manufacturing in a variety of sectors, uh, and that our best days in manufacturing are ahead of us. Um, the government uh, is, um, is neither our friend nor our enemy. Um, our relationship with the government is um, multifaceted. Sometimes the government is a purchaser of manufactured products. Sometimes uh, the government is uh, a facilitator of uh, trade because uh, we have to have reciprocal negotiations with other countries in order for us to open our markets at the same time that their markets are open to provide some of those opportunities. In addition, sometimes government as regulator stands in the way of our exports, um, like our export control regime, um, developed uh, during uh, World War II and the Cold War to prevent uh, the transfer of sensitive technologies abroad. Um, but it's not kept up uh, with today's marketplace and modern technology. Um, we believe there are more than a million jobs that could be created with a significant reform of our export control regulations. Uh, and there are technologies that we sell um, that we're not allowed to sell without a special license from the government um, that you can buy uh, without any of those from a competitor of ours in Germany or Japan or anywhere else. Um, and it just doesn't make any sense. In fact, there are other countries in the world who, uh, to market their wares, say, and no uh, export licensing like in the United States. So there are barriers that our government puts up uh, against us. Um, many others uh, that, uh, uh, that those on the center right might agree with. Uh, we believe our corporate tax policy is uh, the worst in the world. We have the highest corporate tax rate in the world. Canada just lowered theirs, uh, so they're below ours. And uh, before um, the terrible uh, crisis in Japan, uh, they were about to lower their corporate tax rate as well um, to make the U.S. the number one highest corporate tax rate uh, in the world. Um, our pollution abatement costs are higher uh, than any of the uh, other countries in the developed world, uh, according to international pay surveys. Uh, we find ways to make it more expensive to do business in the United States um, than in any other country. Uh, so we think uh, uh, certainly that uh, this uh, um, deluge of uh, regulation uh, coming out of this administration, the last administration, and many in the past um, take insufficient account of our global competitiveness challenges. And so, you know, kind of the conversation about regulatory capture that was in maybe the, uh, the paragraph uh, uh, about this particular session, and Tim certainly referred to it as well, um, if, if we've captured the regulators, then we're not doing a very good job. Um, EPA is considering a, a new, more stringent ozone regulation. Uh, that could cost 7.3 million jobs and add a trillion dollars in regulatory costs to the economy between 2020 and 2030. Um, we've uh, 
managed uh, to convince uh, the White House to convince the EPA uh, that some uh, hor horribly costly and unnecessary rules on uh, boiler emissions uh, should be stayed while they reconsider since they found elements of their own rule uh, to be unthoughtful uh, and unnecessary. Um, OSHA uh, was considering a significant new uh, regulation in uh, noise abatement. Certainly manufacturing uh, is a, often a, a noisy business, and for decades uh, we've managed to protect the hearing of our workers through uh, earmuffs and earplugs and other personal protective equipment. Um, but OSHA decided in, its, uh, in an interpretation uh, that uh, despite it being the most cost-effective way to achieve the result, um, they thought we should have to use a more costly option so long as it didn't put us out of business, but not necessarily because it would protect our workers any better. Um, we're constantly fighting uh, with federal agencies uh, that uh, have no sense of the impacts they may truly have on businesses or what we face in terms of global competition. So we're constantly striving to reduce uh, the costs imposed on us unnecessarily by government. At the same time, uh, we do see government as a catalyst at times, uh, whether it's uh, assisting uh, with export financing, like the Exim Bank. Um, we believe that uh, there are certain goods uh, that the marketplace doesn't provide, um, things like uh, transportation infrastructure um, that is truly interstate uh, and takes account of our needs to move commerce um, between states and across the country to our ports for export uh, or to internal markets. Um, there, may, there certainly is a role for private investment in transportation infrastructure, um, but uh, it would not uh, accomplish uh, what we need um, without the support of government. So there certainly is a role for government in setting the rules of the road, in, uh, in enforcing private contracts, and in making sure that the marketplace is fair, but there are also certainly places where we think the government is doing more to hinder our progress and our ability to compete in the world than to add jobs here um, than it is to assist us. Just, again, to Tim's point on uh, business as a rent seeker, uh, as a um, using regulation to its own ends, um, in, in many cases, I wouldn't disagree with him. In fact, uh, as, a, as an advocate for the National Association of Manufacturers, sometimes I'm fighting against other business groups, sometimes um, uh, pretty specifically on regulatory issues where someone is trying to use the government to support their technology or their particular product. There's a case at the Consumer Product Safety Commission that regulates all consumer products in the United States uh, where there's uh, one uh, inventor in Washington State who's invented a technology for um, preventing a table saw from cutting off your finger. Sounds like a perfectly reasonable, uh, helpful technology. Uh, and basically, it, uh, it recognizes uh, when, when, say, skin or uh, a finger would come into contact with the blade, it rams a break in the blade and stops it. Uh, because there are a number of injuries and incidents with table saws. But I think we'd all know that a giant spinning blade um, is not going to be something we want to put our fingers near. So many of my member companies are designing technologies to prevent your fingers from ever getting anywhere near the blade. Now, uh, this inventor has hired lobbyists 
and there's nothing wrong with lobbyists. I'm one. Tyson may be one. Certainly Public Citizen has lobbyists as well, uh, but has hired lobbyists to uh, force industry to adopt his technology. He also happens to be a patent attorney. So he has run up all the patents on this technology to prevent any company from developing anything close to his technology uh, without him being able to sue us for patent infringement. So we can't find our own way to the technology, and he wants his technology to be favored in a regulation on safety for these products. So something we have to do is fight back against business using that. In another case, different types of businesses uh, can use the government to fight each other. Um, there, the alcohol distributors uh, and wine wholesalers uh, are attempting to use the government uh, to support their method of distribution in the states. There's something called the CARE Act, or the Comprehensive Alcohol Regulatory Effectiveness Act, that they're supporting uh, against manufacturers of uh, beer and wine and liquor. Um, right now, states uh, regulate how alcohol is sold and implement and force um, all uh, distribution to go through a certain tier of businesses uh, called wholesalers and distributors. And you cannot sell uh, in most states directly to the consumer. And some of you may have remembered a Supreme Court case on the direct shipment of wine where some small out-of-state um, wine manufacturers, producers, were prevented from being able to sell directly to the customer even when they couldn't find a distributor in that state uh, to sell for them. So uh, states were using the regulation of uh, alcohol purchasing as a way to uh, support in-state businesses, but to prevent out-of-state businesses from coming in, something clearly contrary to our Commerce Clause in the Constitution. Well, now as a result of that Supreme Court decision, those distributors are worried that their monopoly on distribution of alcohol in the states is going to be uh, overtaken. And as a result, they want Congress to take away its authority uh, to uh, to prevent that type of discriminatory regulation at the states. They want the states to have complete control because they believe states will protect that distribution chain. So certainly there are cases where uh, business attempt to use government to their ends. My hope is that I can demonstrate uh, that the work of the National Association of Manufacturers, where we represent both small and large businesses and are a democratic organization our members vote on what our policies should be, that because we're aggregating interest, aggregating the interest of manufacturers, that more often than not you will find that what we're supportive of is, is good for the nation, certainly good for manufacturing. So I'd say be as skeptical of business uh, as you are that every business or every business group or every lobbyist that represents business has an ulterior motive or is attempting to use government in the way that it's described. Certainly it does occur, but it's not the everyday work of business trade associations in Washington or those who represent large accumulated or aggregated interests. It's the benefit of our system uh, of government where we pit interest against interest and try to find what is in the best interests of the entire public. Thanks. Uh, obviously, there's often an advantage to being last. You have the ability to respond to things that were said before you. So before we get into a deeper discussion, I want to give both Tyson and Tim just a moment to respond to each other if they want. 
and to respond to Rosero, and with the caveat, it's not an opportunity to respond to every single point and rebut every example, but just to take a minute to, to clarify issues. Thanks. Sure. Um, you, uh, you laid out some excellent points about cap and trade and the self-interest of some well-placed industries in supporting that legislation. That was precisely why I made the decision to adamantly oppose the cap-and-trade legislation as it was being formulated and eventually pa passed in the House of Representatives. Um, and instead, we worked on a rival bill that still stands today as the only bipartisan climate bill from uh, last year's Senate, uh, which was uh, designed by Senators Maria Cantwell, Democrat from Washington State, and uh, Republican Susan Collins of Maine, called the CLEAR Act. And we bypassed the 1,000-page cap-and-trade bill with a 41-page piece of legislation. We like simplicity at Public Citizen. And it essentially is a carbon tax proposal that would refund the majority of the money back to households in the form of a dividend check, uh, leaving about 15 to 20 percent of the proceeds from the government-run auction uh, that would uh, assign a value on carbon uh, for 13 different categories of investment, from deficit reduction to renewable energy uh, and energy efficiency, research and development, or deployment. So uh, we worked on that bill. And, and as folks here know, DC legislative tracks work on one single track. You very rarely see uh, substantive competing forms of legislation up for debate at the same time. You sometimes will see that in the House purely for partisan purposes. But in terms of substantive policy debate, you only typically see one piece of legislation move at a time. And decisions from leadership were made to move with a bill uh, being led by John Kerry. Uh, John Kerry, who has never led any sort of major reform in his life. I don't know why he was chosen to, to shepherd that through. Maybe that's why. <laughs> but it, it failed miserably because um, he sucks at it. Um, and it was, a, it was a flawed piece of legislation. So that's something that we continue to work on. So I, I share your analysis on that. And one issue that I didn't really touch on in my opening statements that, that is having a profound impact as we talk about the intersection of, of large corporations with our democracy, and you have to discuss the role that the Citizens United Supreme Court decision has played. It is radically transforming federal elections as we speak. Uh, this is a radical decision from the Supreme Court that says that corporations are entitled to the same free speech rights as individuals and that government cannot regulate their uncoordinated free speech in federal elections as long as a corporation is not coordinating with a candidate or a political party. So what this means is that ExxonMobil uh, can spend a billion dollars it can spend $100 billion. If it had a trillion dollars, it could spend a trillion dollars. And the Supreme Court has deemed that Thomas Jefferson et al. Uh, had such corporations in mind when they were crafting uh, uh, the First Amendment of the Constitution. Uh, this is a radical decision that places corporations in the driver's seat to financially transform the way that uh, federal elections are run. And it is having profound, radical impacts on the way that information is delivered and processed uh, by voters. And it is going to have destabilizing effects. And that's why my organization has uh, launched a website and a campaign called Democracy is for People. And uh, we are seeking a constitutional amendment to address this uh, wrongful decision.
Thank you. Thank you, Tyson. Tim. Um, just to build, actually, off of what Tyson was saying, the John Kerry bill, um, Kerry had a press conference lined up for a Monday, and he actually had spoke to uh, New York Times, Washington Post reporters, you know, on background or off the record to set this up. Stories ran on Sunday newspapers or uh, Monday morning newspapers of saying this is very exciting because we have very important interests behind this bill. Not only do we have these environmentalist groups, but we also have people in the industry like BP. And at the time, BP's uh, rig was actually burning at the time that he was uh, making this. But people didn't know it was going to be as big of a thing. And he had BP, Conoco, and Shell, I think, were the three oil companies lined up to support it. But part of what that goes to is sort of a 41-page cleaner bill that's more, I mean, it's more sort of liberal, progressive, big government, um, is the sort of thing that is less likely to get industry support than the hodgepodge sort of mixed economy thing, which, yes, government comes in, but we're going to carve out this and carve out that, and this is going to be a handout. These, ta- these checks going back to people, that doesn't help any concentrated interest. And I think there's something systemic about Washington that that John Kerry BP type bill will always move further and faster than the the public citizen bill. Then, I mean, a single payer plan was the real kind of left dream plan on health care. Instead, we got this Obamacare monstrosity that now the same guys who supported the subsidies for that bill are saying are now lobbying to make sure that uh, Medicare, which is expanded by Obamacare, that Medicare doesn't institute this new way of, of cost control. And so that's the way it works. The sort of messier it is, the more that industry lobbyists get to write their tweaks and that sort of thing. So the phenomenon I'm talking about would not be as present if I think people like Tyson and Bernie Sanders got their way. We'd have a different problem then, which is socialism destroying our economy. Um, but I, I wasn't aware that I was a socialist. Um, but the uh, but instead, what we have is corporatism uh, dramatically distorting our economy. So I mean, we're, we're I think we're sort of agreeing to some extent, even if you know you don't. Except on the socialism label. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, and and I and I appreciate Tim you you bringing that out because it was actually a question I had jotted down because. To me, I think a lot of this comes down to do you think in terms of the way our government actually works, whether public citizen is going to win or whether BP is going to win, I I think Tim and I have probably come to the conclusion that unfortunately BP is going to beat you out 99 times out of 100. And what's the solution to that? Before we open it up broader to questions, uh, I have a question just to kind of you know, to me, maybe it's the economist in me, what I felt like I heard hearing was a lot of data points uh, in sort of trying to draw an, an empirical analysis of this is supporting my point, I think it'd be helpful for me and helpful for the audience uh, in terms of going back to assumptions and to dig a little deeper. You know, So I want to ask each of the panelists, we're going to make this a little more theoretical, to think about what your policy position is and to think about one or two or a handful of critical assumptions over why you feel that way uh, and to ask yourself, you know, if I could get enough evidence that convinced me that this assumption was wrong, I would change my worldview or I'd change my opinion. So, again, what I'm attempting to force you to do is uh, present your uh, position in a way that's falsifiable. Tyson. All right. Um, 
Well, I think uh, this isn't my area of exact professional expertise, but the the debate over uh, social insurance programs um, and as it relates to to younger generations, particularly, is is a huge debate. Um, and and as a, a liberal who points to the thousands of Americans who were set to retire on the eve of the uh, uh, the Wall Street uh, crash and saw their accumulated savings wiped out very quickly. And there were dozens of news articles uh, about how uh, these folks set to retire, they had their retirement plans, had to scrap those and go back to work. And, and that's an example of why we established these social insurance programs during the Great Depression in the 1930s, was because we dealt with this issue before. There is a demographic problem that has uh, uh, reared its head, that the current way that these, po- that these programs are designed are going to become extraordinarily expensive and possibly very difficult to continue to maintain. And I think that that's a real debate we need to have. The problem is we're not having that debate. Instead, the issue is privatization versus status quo. And the, the privatization plan, for example, as floated during the Bush administration, was uh, not a real policy uh, decision. It was something that, uh, that had massive upfront costs and transferred 100% of the risk onto individuals, setting us up for the same kind of scenario where if you had the good fortune of retiring at a time when uh, your portfolio is strong, then yay for you. If you have the misfortune of uh, retiring at a time when your portfolio is down, along with the rest of everyone else's portfolio, uh, hey, tough luck. Um, And I don't think that that is a system that is sustainable. Um, The current system needs serious fixes. I don't know if this is what you had in mind with your... Not really, but that's fine. Okay. Um, Well, then I'll just stop, because I, I guess I wasn't clear on exactly what you were trying to ask. That's, I'll, 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 I'll answer um, from, I'll try to answer from two fronts. From one front, my, one of my assumptions is that monopoly tends to arise from government intervention in the economy and that free markets, in, um, except in extraordinary cases, uh, tend to be an anti-monopoly force, a decentralizing force in the economy. And the historical examples have been very unconvincing to me um, when people say, oh, well, the monopolies, the trusts, and Teddy Roosevelt had to bust them. I recommend everybody read a book called The Triumph of Conservatism. Conservatism there means preservation of the status quo. It's by Gabriel Kolko, who was a leftist, and he said, actually, Teddy Roosevelt and the progressive policies were often business trying to use more government in order to allow monopolies to exist. But it's possible that either a closer study of uh, trusts or something that would happen in the future would conv- would show me that actually a freer market without bailouts, without regulation, without subsidies actually would lead to more monopoly, more concentration of economic power, which I think would tend to be uh, a, a social bad. And so that that's, yeah, I think that's my answer. That was, that was perfect. Thank you. We'll come back to you, Ty. Sure. <laughs> Uh, and, and I do want a, a chance to uh, rebut on Citizens United at some point. But um, assumptions that say were say critical to my presentation, um, I, I start from an assumption that um, 
on on issues where, uh, say, I might disagree with Tim, where uh, I don't believe um, that state governments and uh, the private sector uh, could uh, construct uh, the interstate highway system or the means of transportation for moving goods in this country. So if that it's a faulty assumption, um, then it would uh, undermine some of my thinking. Um, in addition, on, uh, say, uh, export financing and um, other involvement of the government in promoting uh, trade and exports of the United States, we're competing in a global marketplace where governments uh, in other countries are uh, market uh, participants, where they own um, uh, national champion corporations, where um, their subsidies of, uh, of their industries um, are uh, pronounced or their ability to assist um, by um, uh, fixing the prices of uh, commodities um, so that uh, the raw material costs for some producers in other countries are um, below um, uh, or, or their final cost of productions are below our raw material cost. Um, that somehow uh, we could um, outcompete or simply prevent um, all of that from taking place. And so our government doesn't need to have uh, additional tools at its disposal um, to assist um, domestic companies in, uh, in a global marketplace um, that is uh, unbalanced at times. So if either of those uh, prove to be um, incorrect, then it would certainly undermine some of my positions that were contrary to some of the thinking here. Maybe to clarify, I mean, I want to clarify a little bit one of the things that Tim said and, and how I would think about it and phrase it, which is if one believes that government intervention A is going to benefit big business versus small business, then the concentration of that industry post that intervention should suggest something. So if you do this and the industry becomes more concentrated, maybe that suggests that the beneficiaries, after all, are large business. If you do something and it becomes less concentrated, you know, obviously this is based on the very strong assumption that industry actually uh, knows how to get what it wants and, and how these things actually work. So to maybe, so again, what I'm sort of asking is, you know, are there really one or two things that if, that if you learned and came convinced of that might make you change your mind, whether, whether they're true or not? Um, well, I think that some of the uh, – I agree with the assumption that um, one of the problems in the United States today is, is the unequal interaction between extremely powerful special interests and our government. Um, that does not say that corporations should not play a role at the table. Um, but in my direct experiences uh, working with Congress and regulatory agencies, is that agent is that oftentimes corporations play an outsized role, and and that is because uh, they have the financial resources to organize. Now, I'm I'm sure our our colleague with the National Association of Manufacturers can point to a number of instances on environmental issues or issues where labor unions are involved where uh, you feel that you're at a disadvantage. Um, so there always are going to be examples, um, and it's how different stakeholders organize themselves 
within the economy. And so for me, the issue is how do we get at more equal representation within an advanced uh, economy that operates within a democratic republic as we have today? And the problem is, is that the ascendance of associations and special interest lobbying groups has fractured the policy debate into a number of different stovepipes where each interest is pushing only for their interests that are financed by the various interests that support that special interest without a broader view of how that policy impacts all 300 plus million Americans. And I think that is the critical issue, is how do you get at a system that gets back to the founder's principle of one person, one vote? Because we definitely do not have that today. That was very helpful, and it made me think about a term that Rosero used, which was aggregator, because quite often the way I think about government, markets, corporations, or whatever have you, are they are aggregators of preferences, and they place different weights on different parties to some extent. You know, and whether you have two houses of Congress, obviously rural states get a different weight. Uh, but in, so the question, partly in my mind, and I'm going to throw this actually open to the audience for questions since we're running short on time, is how do these different social institutions result in different aggregations of preferences ultimately? And could, could I say something just on oh, this point sure. too? Well, um, and I mean, I think I, I think this would be an interesting discussion between all three of us, and, and maybe the um, the audience would want to participate here too. But I mean, I think this is a this is a fundamental theme uh, that uh, runs through a critique of business and an assumption and kind of as interns in Washington, I don't know that's not all of you in the audience, but for many of you, um, you have a unique opportunity to view um, government and the workings of government from the inside and from a bunch of different actors. Maybe you're at trade groups, maybe you're at other think tanks, maybe some of you are on the Hill. Um, but this um, often um, big myth that somehow um, corporations are uh, subverting democracy and uh, buying their way uh, into um, members of Congress's uh, favor and getting all these uh, goodies, I think, um, does not actually uh, 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 you know, win out. That that's not the truth. That's that's not how Washington operates. Um, I come from an association that doesn't have a political action committee, so we give no money to uh, federal candidates. And I walk into an office um, as a lobbyist and advocate, say, with a congressional staffer or with a member of Congress, um, because and they want to see me and hear from me because I have information, uh, knowledge, or expertise. Or I represent thousands of jobs in their district, and they care a great deal about the success of their constituents. Um, maybe one of my businesses is headquartered um, in their congressional district. And so they weigh those impacts on their policymaking decisions um, against others. And that often is a, is a, is a better predictor of uh, congressional uh, voting or support or outcomes um, than many others. And it's not uh, Citizens United, which allows us to use a candidate's name in an advertisement 30 days before an election 
rather than um, only uh, issue-based advocacy. Um, it's not a wholesale ripping up of our Constitution or any of the other things you'll often hear advocates on the other side uh, suggest. And uh, most people would assume that the Washington Post or the New York Times uh, are entitled to uh, some uh, First Amendment protections about their involvement in uh political uh, reporting and advocacy, um, and they happen to be corporations. So, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we already make uh, lots of distinctions about uh, the rights of individuals to speak and the rights of corporations, um, but it's, it's – uh, I just – I thought it was important to note that from our side. That's, that's incredibly important, and there's part of me who's tempted to spend the rest of the time on Citizens United, but I won't. <laughs> as important as that, as that decision is, and maybe one way I will reframe – reframe something you said, which is, in, in my mind, you can ask yourself the question of, you know, do we have uh, large ethanol subsidies because of Archer Daniel Midland, or do we have large uh, ethanol subsidies because the unique role that Iowa plays in presidential primaries and corn farmers there? And because of our, yeah. Both would probably be the answer. Uh, with that, let's start taking some questions uh, right here. You. Um, uh, someone will bring you a mic, and I will uh, say, please, uh, Questions, comments to a minimum, uh, and triply be quick and get to the point. Yeah. Uh, all you three commented on one aspect of, of the of the government behavior and how it affects business. Uh, would you mind commenting, if, if I'm not mistaken, the, the corporate tax rate here in the U.S. is really high, so they can carve out tax incentives uh, to prefer industries such as green energy or even oil or whatever, what have you, in form of a subsidy as well, uh, when big business and big government collude in another issue, would you care to comment on that side of the spectrum? It's true that, that the U.S. corporate tax rate is high. The effective tax rate is not. And that is because, as you say, there's a number of uh, deductions and credits that nearly all industries can take advantage of. And so you hear a lot of talk about the tax rate, and that is deliberately misleading. You have to look at the effective tax rate. What is the effective tax rate that industries are, are, uh, are paying? And to assume that, uh, as the Obama administration has done, a compromise to lower the tax rate, get rid of uh, a number of the deductions and credits to uh, streamline the, the corporate tax code, to assume that you are still not going to find loopholes and preferences make their way into that, even with a lower tax rate, uh, I think, would be simplistic. Um, I, I do not want to see punitive tax rates on individuals or corporations, but there's no question that the share of taxes paid by corporations is far, far lower today than it was a generation or two ago. And uh, as I said, corporations uh, benefit just as much, if not more, from government protections. And I just want to make sure that corporations and their shareholders are adequately contributing to the numerous needs uh, in today's society, uh, the way that uh, individuals are uh, through the assumption of massive levels of debt. Well, first of all, there's there's an argument against abolishing a corporate tax rate, corporate income tax altogether. Um, and that's something to think about, because corporations not being people, they basically just pass their taxes on to shareholders and customers, et cetera. But rather than get into that, um, Obama talks about uh, you know, getting rid of these tax expenditures, but he doesn't 
mean it. He He's loading up tons of green energy uh, tax credits. And Republicans talk about a cleaner tax code, but they don't mean it either. They're the ones who created, um, probably uh, with the help of uh, National Association of Manufacturers, the single largest corporate income tax credit is called the domestic production credit. and It's actually a deduction. It's a, credit. a deduction. And so a, you get to – it's a special basic tax break if you're producing, drilling oil, mining coal, making airplanes, or manufacturing. And so if you were to get rid of that and treat all companies – more equally, you could lower the ta- the corporate tax rate, and then you get rid of the green energy ones, and then you get rid of all the other special interest ones. The tax rate then would be far lower, and it wouldn't be as distorting. But you know who would lose in that case? The well-connected businesses that have tweaked it so they can pay zero taxes, and mostly the the lobbyists who do much better when there's all, again, the mess and the tweaking to do than they would with a cleaner tax code. So the National Association of Manufacturers is for a lower uh, corporate tax rate that's competitive in the world and that, uh, that is uh, fairer and flatter and something that some might call a loophole, but we think, again, is an important competitive element, is a research and development tax credit. Um, despite uh, Tyson's argument that um, that the effective tax rate is all you should think about. The challenge for us as manufacturers in a global marketplace is that you can invest that next dollar of capital anywhere in the world. And if it's more expensive to invest here than someplace else, it's going to factor into your consideration. And you don't know what your effective tax rate is going to be until you actually file your taxes. So there are manufacturers in the United States who pay the full uh, rate of, uh, of of 35%, the corporate tax rate. So we need a, a lower corporate tax rate to compete globally, but at the same time, our competitors have far more generous research and development tax credits as well. We think that this should be the best place in the world to headquarter a company and the best place in the world to do a company's research and development, but our tax code is discouraging that. And so as they talked about, multinational corporations, if they could invest the next dollar here in the U.S. or the next dollar abroad, it often will make more sense to invest that next dollar abroad. Um, So we can have a tax system that promotes production in the United States, that promotes manufacturing, um, or we can have one that discourages it. And currently, our, our current code does not do that. So you won't see the National Association of Manufacturing arguing for individual credits for individual businesses, um, but we will support tax reforms that broadly assist manufacturing, promote exports, um, and promote U.S. manufacturing. Thank you. Trevor, I know you had a really short brief question. Yes, got um, right uh, for actually everyone, and I know this isn't about labor, but I was wondering if you would apply the same reasoning you had about Citizens United for Mr. Slocum as allowing labor unions to speak on elections. Would you? Of course, you wouldn't have that's public citizens' official position listed on our website. Any any entity that's covered by the Supreme Court decision, which includes labor unions, we treat it all the same. And for the record, public citizen, like the National Association of Manufacturers, does not have a political action committee. Uh, next question, uh, right here. Uh, this question is for Mr. Carney. To what extent do you think um, 
sorry, Thins. But to what extent do you think um, the current situation with uh, large corporations having so much political power is a natural result of our uh, capitalist society? I think that corporations are able to get big in part because of our capitalist society. I think that corporations wouldn't spend so much time and money trying to control government if government weren't so controlling so much of the economy. I think it's this this ratchet where it goes both ways, where businesses lobby for more uh, benefits and favors, which usually takes the form of either just more government power or more government discretion and picking winners and losers, which then brings in more businesses, which then increases the government. I think it's a vicious circle where uh, the cause goes back and forth. But again, I think it's government that drives the growth in uh, corporate lobbying. David Bowes of Cato said it well. He said, you set out a picnic, you get ants. You set out, you know, handouts and regulations that affect the fate of a business more than you're going to get more lobbying and corporations playing more of a role. So I, I don't think capitalism leads to corporations having too big of a role. I think government growth leads to corporations doing too much to be able to affect other businesses. I I, want to respectfully absolutely disagree on that point. To to suggest that it's government uh, regulatory or economic decisions that create a Walmart or an ExxonMobil or uh, a Dow Chemical, I think, is not an accurate read about the history of corporate development or how these corporations establish themselves in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, but it's what brings them to, to Washington. In other words, Walmart... They come to Washington because uh, spending a dollar uh, on, on lobbying or making contributions often has the chance of uh, uh, expanding into greater benefit. It's a huge... It's a very positive investment. But that's a radically different premise than to say that it is... That government growth is the catalyst for the massive multinational corporations that we have. I, I don't see any empirical well, I, evidence that well, the, the, uh, the size of the federal government is creating massive corporations. I would say that the testable, the testable hypothesis here would be to compare capitalist countries to non-capitalist countries, and if you could certainly have a degree of socialist versus communist versus mixed economies on a scale, uh, certainly I won't claim to be an expert on, say, the French economy, but it looks like that they have a fairly concentrated you know, business, too. But again, it's an empirical question that, that could be, and hopefully somebody hasn't. If not, uh, I guess if, you say, if you're looking for a summer research project, that's a great one there. Uh, let me take another question here in the front. Obviously, I'm here with the Fund for American Studies. They operate pretty nice programs, so you should go check their counter. <laughs> um, I have a comment and question uh, on what Mr. Palmieri said about uh, international trade and the subsidies which uh, is provided by foreign governments to certain uh, industries in their their countries. Um, As an example, I would take a clothing business. Uh, If, uh, say, Spain um, is is providing subsidies to the clothing business, um, uh, then wouldn't it make us better as consumers? Because we get um, uh, we get the goods uh, with uh, less uh, uh, cost, and um, on the other hand, this uh, saves money uh, to our government or to, to the government of the of the United States. If our government has uh, more money, uh, then it doesn't tax the companies 
in response. Let the that. Spanish taxpayers pay for our clothes. Is yes, what you're they, they pay they pay for for your clothes, and plus you, the government has more money. As the government has more money, it doesn't tax the companies which they would tax if if it uh, uh, if it provided subsidies. Uh, so if the companies have uh, less taxes, don't you think that they would do better off and the consumers would be better off? I said uh, our economy several times, but I, I'm not from the United States. So. <laughs> well, uh, if I could, I, I, I think that that tax burden is not the sole or driving decision for manufacturing intensive industries. It's going to be labor costs. And that has been the story of the U.S. decline in manufacturing. I, I definitely appreciate the statistics you were given that we're still the largest manufacturer. But the share of manufacturing jobs as a share of total GDP and of total unemployment has plummeted. And it's because of the globalization of the economy and the ability for capital to be incredibly mobile and find new sources of almost infinite labor markets. And China is a perfect example. That is such a large labor market that costs are continually driven down, and it has resulted in evisceration of a huge segment of the U.S. economy. And there are huge geographic areas that are wastelands in the United States that used to be the engines of economic growth. Times change. You need to adjust. But if massive retailers like Walmart, which do provide enormous value for consumers, which comes in handy during times like this. But if it comes at the expense of well-paying, stable jobs, I'm not sure that that's a trade-off that all Americans uh, would, would agree to. I think some Americans wouldn't mind paying more for a product if it meant that their uh, wife or their cousin or their neighbors were better and gainfully employed. And I'm so glad that Tyson is concerned about manufacturing jobs since there are a number of um, of unnecessarily costly regulations coming out of the EPA that are going to cost us manufacturing jobs. And like that boiler rule we discussed was going to decimate local communities um, that were dependent on that one, you know, final kind of forest and paper mill. So sensitivity to manufacturing jobs, I think, is important and critical. To your question on um, on on subsidies and, uh, and kind of uh, global supplies, I mean, I think what we'd say is that Part of um, what we generally favor um, in trade agreements and negotiations is for every country to kind of walk away from its support of industries. And so, uh, but you can't unilaterally disarm sometimes um, without having negative domestic effects. And so, uh, so what we think is that so long as uh, we're not disadvantaged globally um, by other governments' uh, actions, uh, then it might not make sense. But if the difference between buying um, uh, large manufactured product X versus Y is the difference between uh, who can get export financing from their government, um, means that we're going to lose out um, too often um, and, and have to have some tools when we're competing against other governments. Uh, we don't think it's a great place for governments to be, um, but in the system we have today, uh, it's a reality, and it's one we have to deal with if we want to support um, uh, U.S. manufacturing. Mark, can I, I quickly? I just, very quickly. I think the question gets at an assumption that, uh, that Rosario hasn't even stated outright, which is that manufacturing, that making T-shirts in the United States is a good thing in itself. 
And yes, there are negative costs if the other guys subsidize and so we lose. But there are also going to be gains that have been stated. And so yeah, I don't believe that – I think that export subsidies do help export jobs. But I think that the costs of helping those export jobs stay here are bigger in the taxpayer exposure, in higher prices, et cetera. So the assumption – and this is, of course, your job is to make this assumption. I'm just saying why people shouldn't necessarily – always listen to you, is the assumption is that manufacturing in the United States is a good in itself that needs to be protected. No, it's a good that needs to be weighed against other goods. Uh, that, that was very helpful. Uh, I'm going to end this with an example because I want to recognize something that I, I think public citizen has always done well, uh, which is I spent a lot of time over the years trying to do something about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and, and Ralph Nader was one of the few, if not the lone voices on the left, who called them for what they were. Uh, and it is worth saying that they would not exist, in my opinion, in a free market. There's absolutely no way our secondary mortgage market would have been that concentrated. Uh, and maybe it goes back to the earlier point uh, that Tim made, which is we might feel a little bit different about this as public citizens actually won more often than the Fannie Mae's and the BP's of the world win. Uh, with that, uh, I want to give all of our round of applause for all of our speakers. Uh, I want to hear more about that. And want to want to welcome you upstairs to your reception. <laughs>